So over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about focusing our attention during the month of October to a new initiative and a new plan, a new study called Seek First. For the last two weeks, you've been receiving these devotionals. Did everybody have one? Mm-hmm. Did you get one already? Yeah. Did you yes. get one this morning? Did you start reading it yet? You better not have, because we're starting tomorrow, <laughs> collectively. All of us are putting our attentions together to doing several things during the month of October. Part of it is that Pastor Bill will be preaching a series called Seek First, where we are focusing our minds and our attentions on the issue of generosity in our lives. Not just generosity with our finances, but with our time, our emotion, our relationships, our influence. So many different areas of our lives that can be influenced by this principle of generosity. And so this devotional guide is going to lead each of us through collectively. We're all going to be reading the same things each day for the next 20 days. So if you did not get one of these devotionals, you need to get one as you leave today. And we begin tomorrow to read through and study through and pray through this series on generosity in our own private lives. It'll give you, some, some of you who don't have a personal discipline of reading, this will give you a good first step towards a daily time in God's Word and in prayer. Inside this devotional guide is a bookmark that we trust that you'll be able to use uh, in other areas too, but it highlights the four things we are going to be seeking collectively during the month of October. The first is that we are going to be seeking God daily. As Christians, we ought to call out to him and seek after him every single day. So we are making a commitment together to seek God and his word. Part of it is through this. Part of it is through your own personal time of of study. We're also going to seek time to pray. Pray specifically for people. There might be neighbors, coworkers, fellow students, uh, fellow people around your community that you normally interact with. Maybe it's the grocer. Maybe it's the butcher. Maybe it's the postal worker. Maybe it's somebody that you know the first name of. Put their name down somewhere and begin praying for them, particularly that God would give you opportunities to talk with them. And that's the third thing we're committing to. We're committing to seeking uh, meaningful conversations with not just those people, but others. I'm convinced that oftentimes we don't really impact people for the gospel because we don't really talk about Jesus. We talk about Jesus here, but we don't talk about Jesus there like he's a normal part of our life. And we're challenging each other to seek meaningful conversations with people about who Jesus is and who he means to us. And the last is we're seeking to live generous lives. We want to live a life collectively that is not focused on our own self and our own growth, but rather on the impact that we can make on the community around us. And so hopefully many of you will will have already committed and will commit even this morning to partner with us as we go through this during the month of October. We're going to have a time of, of celebration and communication tomorrow night called the Vision Night. It'll be over in the Ministry Center from 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock. It's free, but we want as many people there as possible. You can check out the church app to get more details about that. It's free, but we'd love for you to sign up so we know how many people are going to be with us between 7 o'clock and 8 o'clock tomorrow evening in the Ministry Center. And uh, now as Pastor Bill comes up, we just want to uh, turn our attentions to the Word as we seek to seek first. Pastor Bill. Thank you, Matthew. So before we open the Word, we'll be in the Word in just a minute. I just want to say a couple more things. I know there have been a lot of introductions and things, but um, this week in uh, City Lead, we talked about disruptions and how innovations and things happen during disruptions. And there's two things that can happen when something is disrupted. One is you kind of go into a cocoon and just kind of retreat, or another thing is you move forward. And I want you to know, I don't know if you listened to Carl when he said, we started the City House Ministry here on our campus in 2020. 
2020 was when the world was retreating. And we said we can't retreat because homelessness is not something that retreats. It's something that is there. And we move forward with renovating and doing, and you all were the ones who helped. So over the last two, three years, we've been asking you to help us in various initiatives, and one of them has been City House. And now to realize there'll be 28 people, 28 fellow human beings that are going to have a home within the next two weeks. Most of them already do. The three families that are moving in over the next two weeks will have a home. And it's a home that is garnished around a church, around Christ, around a Christian school, around people that love Jesus to help them as these families get back on their feet. And I think it's an amazing thing that we chose to do it during COVID when everybody else was complaining that the world was going to hell in a handbasket. And we said, you know what, we're going to put out our hand and do something worthy of it. And so I just want to say thank you. And it's worth going over and seeing it because these were old, decrepit buildings that were kind of left over from other things things over the years, and we've used them for various things, and you saw how nice they were, and that's because of people like you have given, and then some families have actually done the work, and others, it's just a fantastic opportunity to see what God is doing, and really modeling throughout South Florida, we're, we're partnering with City House to see if there's other churches that might own a duplex, or a family member of a church owns it, and see if there's other churches around South Florida, and see if we can help as the body of Christ in South Florida to solve homelessness, because I think we can. And we at Boca Community Church have begun to do our part in this. If you know other churches, connect them to City House, connect them to us, and we'll get them so that they can also participate And let's see if we can do this. And we do it in a spiritual way. So we're working with these women and the children, and it's just a fantastic opportunity. So go over there, see it, pray with us. We're going to have a prayer meeting, just a short time of prayer over there as well. We want to move forward. Also, as thank you, Matthew, for describing tomorrow night, you do not have to be a member of the church to come tomorrow night, but to see the vision of where we're heading. Um, We started also three years ago, Um, some improvements on our buildings. We have a huge physical plant, and though they all look beautiful, they're old buildings. We've been doing roofs and lighting and videos and security systems and air conditionings, and we're really in a third year of like a three and a half, four-year project. We're going to share some of those as well and ask if you'll help participate over the coming months to help us finish well some of these projects that will hopefully take us through the next 10 or 20 or 30 years of ministry within these buildings that we call Boca Raton Community Church here on 4th Avenue. So, and we'll talk about other things tomorrow night, so please come at that time. Well, let's turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 10. And we're in the subject of radical generosity. And last week we talked about God's radical generosity and mercy. And today we're going to talk about radical generosity within relationships. And there's a great passage in chapter 17 of Luke, the first 10 verses. Some of them are a little confusing. So we've kind of put some that are familiar and just kept going. There's four little vignettes that are occurring here that Jesus is talking to his disciples. And I want you to grab hold of these as we look. And what's interesting is the very first verse, verse 1, depending on your translation, 
is probably the most differently translated verse that I've seen. If you have the NIV, if you have the NAS, if you have the ESV, if you have the NLT, it doesn't matter if you even know what these acronyms mean. They're all different versions of the English uh, Bible. They all have a different opening. They all use a different word. And I want us to explain. It says here, and Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him or her if a millstone were hung around his or her neck and he were cast into the sea that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Some of your translations like mine says temptation. Some of your translations say hindrance. Some of your translations say scandal. What does that mean when it says temptations to sin are sure to come? Here's the point number one. Radical generosity should make us not do certain things. See, we always talk about generosity as to do things, to give of your time, to give of your talents, to give of your wealth, to give of the truth, all these to-dos. And there's also one to not do. There's something you should not do, and that is if I can use the word hinder someone else in their walk with Christ. Hinder them, cause them to be tempted. This word uh, temptation is really the word bait, bait. You know, in a trap, there's two kinds of major kinds of traps that you know. One of the traps is you dig a hole, you put some palm leaves over and you wanna trap an animal and they walk into it and don't know they're walking into it, right? You just kind of walk, or we've seen in war where they put a, a string across and there's a bomb and all these traps. You don't know they're there. The other kind of trap is that you see something you want, i.e. food, and you go to the food and there's a trap attached to the food. So if it's a mouse trap, it's that little thing that goes to break its back. If it's like uh, when Elizabeth and I had animals around our house that we didn't want those animals around our house, we bought a have a heart trap. Have you ever seen a have a heart trap? If you don't want to kill the animal, you just want to relocate the animal. Is It's square or kind of rectangle. It's made of wire and it has two openings. And in the middle is the trap you put smelly tuna and all this kind of stuff in it. They walk in it to eat it, and then the sides fall. And so you haven't hurt the animal. So we had raccoons at our house, a whole family. They were cute. Raccoons is not what you want when you have little children as we had. And so I thought, okay, get the have a heart trap. So I got to have a heart. We did it. And all we caught were opossums <laughs> because the raccoons were too smart. They knew to keep their tail out get the food, and when the thing dropped, it kind of, they slid back out. I never caught a raccoon with a have a heart trap, but the opossums, they're like idiots. <laughs> and I'm thinking, and then, totally an aside, this has nothing to do with a sermon, I thought, okay, I'll relocate out to West Boca, all you people that live West Boca, these opossums, and then I realized in the backseat of my car, I have this rabid foam thing, and if he ever got loose, I'd be dead. And it's just shaking as I'm driving out there. I thought, this is really one of the stupidest things I've ever done, is have a, a possum in the back seat of my car. Anyway, 
What the Bible says is, don't trap people. Don't be the person that hinders someone else because, and we need to understand, Jesus loved to do hyperbole. Do you know what hyperbole is? This weighs 1,000 pounds. I can't, uh, it's a, it doesn't weigh 1,000 pounds. It weighs 20 pounds, 10 pounds. But you, hyperbole is you go extra. You go, oh, this is, you know, when you're in a meeting and you go, how many people were in the meeting? You go, a couple of hundred. Well, you don't know how many were there. Was it 100, 80, 200? You just kind of throw out these things. And he goes, it's as if you put a millstone now, he's not saying you're going to get a millstone around. A millstone was this big and literally did weigh about 500 pounds, and it was how they grounded. It took donkeys or mules or cows or something to pull this thing and to mill the wheat and mill the barley. And he said, it's like you put that around your neck and you're going down in the water. Well, he's not saying you're going down in the water, but it's as if you were going down in the water because you are destroying people's life and God takes seriously when we destroy other people's lives spiritually. And that's what he's saying here. So he's saying, first of all, so the first thing we need to know is that we are not to do something. If you want to be radically generous with someone, stop. Stop doing this. And then he says in verse 3, a very important couple of words. Pay attention to yourselves. Now, that's not a hedonistic, it's all about me, pay attention to myself, but he's talking in a very spiritual context, pay attention to yourselves. So he's transitioning from this don't do something to do something, and he's saying pay attention now. Pay attention to yourselves, because what we tend to do with this next section is pay attention to everybody else. The next section is about everybody else, not about me. If your brother or sister sins, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. And if he sins again against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Now, this is a very powerful statement. Again, let's remember that it's also in the book of Matthew. In Matthew, he says, 77 times, or in some of your translations, 70 times seven. So basically, if someone just keeps sinning, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? Forgive. You're supposed to rebuke that person and forgive. But what he says here is, and think about it, think about it. Somebody sins against you. Rebuke and forgive. They sin again forgive. They sin again, forgive. They sin again, forgive. Do you see it? So what happens between the times they sin against you? Have you ever thought of this? You have to forgive. Forgive is before the sin and after the sin. In other words, you got to forgive before you go and point the figure and rebuke. You got to forgive before you point out to them what they are doing wrong. You got to forgive before and you got to forgive after. Forgiveness is a incredible, what's the right word? Foundational understanding of radical generosity relationally. And we use the word radical because it's seven times. 
What if it's not going to be seven times in one day? Nobody has that amount of time to do that. But what they're saying is that if there's a continual sense of somebody doing wrong, you still are forgiving them, which means you're forgiving them before they do it and you're forgiving them after. We only think it's after the fact. They do something, I forgive. And then they do something, I forgive. But remember, you've forgiven them before they did it the next time. So there needs to be that underlying foundation of forgiveness, but we don't always have this. What usually happens, and this is why we need to pay attention to ourselves, what usually happens is we get angry with a person, right? You might love them, you appreciate them, might be a child, a spouse, a coworker, a partner, um, name whatever, a boss, and you like them, you, you know, but you get angry with them. I wanna stop and look at the word anger for a moment because it really is far more insidious than we let on. Tim Keller, who was the author of this and who we're working through with this, and we've bought these books from the ministry, and he just passed away. What a great man of God Pastor Keller was. Um, He talks about anger, and he says the root word of anger is the word wrath, Wrath. You know, the word is kind of the old English, old-fashioned word, wrath. He goes, do you really understand wrath? Because wrath has four parts to it. So when you're angry, you have wrath. But there's another word that matches wrath, and that's the word wreath. Wreath. You know what a wreath is? A wreath is a piece of uh, holly or some other um, plant that you have twisted into a circle to make a wreath. We do this at Christmas. Now we buy them already made. We buy them fake and all the rest. But they were originally made where you took a vine or took some other things and you twisted it and then tied it so that it made a beautiful thing and you could hang it on your wall or on your door, mantle, whatever it is, right? It's twisted. Anger twists you. Now, the third word, so you have wrath, wreath. Another one that matches, that's a part of it, is the word writhe. Do you know what it means to writhe? We don't use that word at all. You writhe in pain. When you're like this, you know, and you have that internal stomach, something's going wrong internally, you are writhing in pain. What that means is... Literally, is something is inside of you that is twisted. I remember a few years ago, John Lucas and I were on a trip in Africa with World Lead, and we had a group of people, and they all came back, and we stayed, and we're in this very rural place, and all of a sudden, John is writhing in pain. We, I'm not a doctor, no doctors within any sense of time or space. So I had a decision to make. What am I going to do? He's doubled over. He can't move. Do I find a hospital or a clinic or something, or do I try to get him back to the United States? I made a decision to try to get him back to the United States, and it saved his life because what happened was his colon and small intestines had actually twisted and shut. Nothing could pass. So no you know, all those little, you know, peptabismal kind of things and even the heavier ones and Zegarit and all those drugs would do nothing because it was twisted. 
There was nothing that could get through because of the twist. It took like three days to get back and all the rest. We got him back. He went into the hospital and they cut it and reconnected it because it was so twisted. He would have been dead another 24 hours, they said, because of the twisting. What happens in anger is we become twisted and no life can go through. Now, the fourth word, if I can give you just another word from wrath that you probably don't even know, is the word wraith, W-R-A-I-T-H. Wraith is a word that is in kind of Old English. A wraith was a ghost from your past that came to haunt you. That's what a wraith is. Now, we don't believe in them, but think about it. Anger is a ghost from your past that comes to twist you so that you have no more life in yourself. See, I think when I'm angry at you that I'm doing something to you. When I'm angry at you, I'm doing something to me. I'm destroying my life. And he's saying, pay attention to yourself. For you, I've got to forgive, right? So I'm forgiving you, but I've got to make sure I do not have the twisted sense of anger in my life. When I was an elder of the church here, I was younger. I think I was in my 30s, and a a man, an older man, came up to me and just spewed out the most incredibly bad things. I mean, it was bad. Bad about the church, bad about the pastor at the time, bad about everything we were doing. I was, an, I was a, a layman at the time. He was just on and on and on and on. And then he walks away. And I saw his friend shortly thereafter. I knew him, uh, that he had a friend. I didn't know how he had a friend, but he did. <laughs> and his friend said, I, I told him, I don't know what to do. This guy is saying all these like angry things, wrathful things. And this is what the friend said to me. He said, don't worry about it. He's been like that for 50 years. And I thought, what a tragedy. You see, it wasn't about us. It wasn't about the church. It wasn't about the pastor. It wasn't about what we did and didn't do. It was about this guy who was internally dying. And the Bible says, and Jesus says, pay attention because you have to Forgive. So the first thing we have to do is not do certain things, not to bring people into the wrong way. The second thing we have to do is to forgive. Now, the third thing, which is really cool, go over to verse five, and this is the part you do know from this passage. The apostles said to the Lord, so now they're responding after Jesus said this, forgiving seven times, and they knew it was high hyperbole, so there's, it, Jesus is saying, just always forgive, always forgive, always forgive, always forgive. And what did they say? Increase our faith. So now forgiveness, now is a, a discussion about faith, for, increase our faith. And the Lord said, and he does another little hyperbole here, if you had the faith, like, like, that lets you know it's not real, it's like, he's, he's giving us a story, like a grain of mustard seed, You could say to this mulberry tree, they're probably under a tree in the afternoon as he's talking, big tree that's shading them, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. 
Now, let me tell you what this verse is not saying. I have a lot of great Pentecostal friends. I love Pentecostals. I just love them. I, they're, they're my good friends. But a lot of times they say, if you have enough faith, you can take a tree and put it in the sea. And that's not what this is saying. That's not what this is saying. It's not about us taking a tree and going, go into the sea. Or doing, this is not about miracles. This is not a passage about miracles. Maybe there are other passages about miracles we can talk about that people can do miracles. This is not the one. Because what he says, they say, increase our faith. And what does he say? You really need to decrease it. Because a mustard seed, and I've had them, you put a mustard seed in, and I'll be a little hyperbolic, you, you, you put 100 mustard seeds in my hand, and I can't even feel them. They're so small. You just, they're like, and if I went, they just blow away. The mustard seed is the smallest seed. There's nothing there. He's, he's not saying, oh, increase my faith so I have more faith. He's saying, what you need is to have faith. I think many of us think we have faith and we don't have it. We're asking to increase our faith and we don't even have faith at all. He's not going after the quantity of faith. He's going after faith itself. The quality of faith. Do you have faith? Because if you really had faith, this would not be an issue. And the issue is not moving a mulberry tree into the sea. The issue is forgiving your brother and your sister for what they've done against you. See, they're saying, we can't forgive our brother and sister, and we go and talk about trying to move a tree into the sea. It's not about the miracle of physicality. It's about the miracle of forgiveness. If you can honestly, for, if you have faith, you can honestly forgive someone. And it doesn't take this much faith. It takes this much faith. It's just having faith. The question is, do you have faith? Am I bleeping in and out here? No, okay, I'm hearing something behind me. Okay, so have faith. And I tell you, you know, we need to be careful when we tell people you just don't have enough faith. You just don't have enough faith. And like, uh, it's more like, do you have faith? Because if you had faith in Jesus Christ, these things would happen. So it's more an indication of the quality of the faith than the quantity of the faith. And we love, because we're Americans, we love more, so more must be better. It's just the existence of faith in your life that will change it. So a new believer, and then me, who's been a believer, my spiritual birthday was this week. It was 51 years ago I came to Christ this week. So my spiritual faith and a new believer who came to Christ this week is the same. Now, I may have more knowledge, I have more understanding, I have more wisdom, whatever else, but the faith part, these were the apostles he's talking to. This is John and Peter and Matthew and Thaddeus and, you know, Philip and all these great guys, Andrew. None of us can go like them. And they're saying increase our faith. And he's saying, nope, it's not about increasing. It's about just having it. So please understand, we need to have faith, not just try to increase our faith. And then fourth, he goes into a story, which is really a tough story to understand, but I'd like to do it because it's a part of this passage. So 
radical generosity, we don't do certain things, we are forgiving, we have faith, and then he brings it back to God, back to himself and God. But he doesn't use those words, he uses a parable. He says, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep? None of them had servants who plow and keep sheep because they were fishermen, so it's obviously a parable. Nobody had sheep, so it wasn't like, oh, you know, like so-and-so, like Matthew who has sheep, if you were one of him. None of them owned sheep, so this is a, excuse me, a parable. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he rather say to him, prepare dinner, dress properly, serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you can eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because of what he was commanded to do? So, that's a question. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants and we have only done what was our duty. Now this is important to understand, is that sometimes we treat God like we're the king and he's the servant. Give me this, give me that, give me this, give me that, give me this, give me that, right? How much of our prayers are the give me prayers? Give me this, give me that. Or withhold this, withhold that if it's something bad you don't want. But give me this, give me that. And he's saying that we are the servants and he is the king. And he's just putting into perspective the reality that we are not the kings, we are the servants. Uh, It's unbelievable. And you go, I don't like that part of this Bible. Well, that's why we go through it verse by verse because there's parts I don't like too. And, but we've got to understand that this is the part where we are servants. You see, if we're not taking people the wrong way, if we're forgiving, if we have faith, and if we serve our king, this is what he's saying, and I'm, I'm going to use a more modern term, that gives us radical generosity. Because we understand why. Because... The servant here, some of yours say slave, and we have, again, we've got to get out of our mind colonial Western New World slavery, and you have to think of back then, old world slavery. There was multiple types of slavery, but this type was an indentured servant. In other words, they owed a debt, they couldn't pay, so they were going to jail. There was debtor's prisons back then, But this person in this parable took them in. In other words, they're paying off their debt. They're doing it in humility. They're doing this. And so it's not like, oh, you worked hard today. Now we're going to give you a reward. And this is what we as believers think. Oh, I work hard for God today. I get a reward tonight. No, you work hard for God today so that you can go to sleep and work hard for God tomorrow. Because he owes us nothing and we owe him everything. Now, the beautiful thing is he is a king, and he gives us gracious gifts. In fact, he's the father of gifts. So the reality is he gives out of his generosity, not out of his obligations. He is generous to us when he owes us nothing. And that's the beautiful thing. We are servants. Christ is king. He came down and gave us 
through his death, eternal life. What more could we ask that would cause us to have pride? No, it causes us to have humility because we have faith in him. We understand forgiveness and we understand sin. Now, let me go back to the beginning with sin. This is interesting. We love to dehumanize people, don't we? So, when it comes to sin and forgiveness, we love to say, they are doing bad things to me. They are doing bad things to me. And so, what we like to do is dehumanize them. It's they or him or her are doing these bad things, and they are defined by what they're doing. But me, I'm doing good. So let's just use a simple thing like lying. Lying. So lying, you're a liar. I caught you in a lie. You lied, lie, lie, you know, and you give all these details of the lie, right? But what if I got caught in a lie? Well, it's a little more complex, isn't it? It was a white lie. It wasn't a real lie. I was trying to protect some people while I lied. You see, I'm humanizing my lie and dehumanizing their lie. Do you see that? Because we like to dehumanize people. This is human nature. And God is saying, Christ is saying rather, you can't do that because we must remember that every sinner is in the community of humanity and I am in the community of sinners. Let me repeat that. The sinners are in the community of humanity and I am in the community of sinners. You see, I sometimes, we pull ourselves out of the sinner category and put ourselves into the judge category. And we are not the judge. We are the ones who are to forgive because we are sinners as well. And you know what? Maybe you're on the side that need to be forgiven a couple of times a day. Not just the one who needs to forgive. Maybe you need to be forgiven You know, I know we're all nice people and you look great, but maybe some of you need some forgiveness given to you. Wouldn't you agree? Have you ever made a mistake? Have you ever done something wrong? Have you ever done something stupid? The answer is yes. So let's let's apply this today in two ways. One is personally and one is larger. Personally, are you a person of faith? It's... It's not of are you a person of great faith. Are you a person of faith in Jesus Christ? Because the faith of a mustard seed is what you need. Do you even have that? And that is what Christ calls, believe in me and you shall be saved. Have faith in me. Some use the word receive. You can use any of those words, but it is faith in Jesus Christ. Now, maybe my faith is a little bigger than yours because I've been walking with Jesus for 51 years, and maybe there are people in here that have been walking 20 years with Jesus that have more faith than me. That's good, but that's not the point. The point is, do you have the faith? And with that, you help people, you're forgiving, and you're humbly working with your creator, and that's the important thing. Now, here, let's look at it corporately. Our world is filled with wars. And what is a war? A war is a corporate conflict. People go to war with each other. This person with this, the husband, the wife, the this. We use war, though, now just for the larger, you know, 
regional conflicts. And we have a lot of them in this world. They're in South Sudan. It's in Ukraine. There's some in the Far East. There's always something going on in Latin America. They don't call it war anymore. They call it insurrections. They call it terrorism, etc. But something happened yesterday. Did you see it? Okay, we can't just walk by this. Because we live in a city that's one of the largest Jewish populations in the world by per capita. We live in a city that has a large Muslim population. We live in a city that has a large Christian population. We live in a microcosm of the Middle East. Whether we know it or like it or not, it is what it is. And it is distressing and it is disruptive. And the question is, what are you personally going to do about it? Now, I can complain about this and I can complain about that, you know, governmentally, and are we doing enough or are we not doing enough? And I can do that. But we live in a town where all this plays out, not with guns and battles, but with words or, should I say, ignoring people. I believe we as followers of Jesus Christ, people of the faith and of forgiveness, have a grand opportunity to talk to people in this town. You have Jewish neighbors you have Jewish coworkers. You have Jewish vendors. Everybody, if you just step out of your house, you'll find a Jewish person in this town. And I'm not saying that disrespectfully. I, I love this town, and I love it. But do not ignore the reality that you have an opportunity to talk about the Prince of Peace and praying for the peace of Jerusalem with these people because there is no peace in Jerusalem right now. But yet we believe in the person who can bring peace to Jerusalem, don't you? This is not a time to shrug back. Now, there's a lot of Muslims in this community. What a great time to go to a Muslim friend of yours and go, I am so sorry. What a tough time this is for you, I'm sure. And just start sharing about Jesus Christ to them. Share with them. And then there are people that are nons that are confused about it all, and you can give them kind of the plan of God, right? People go, oh, this is new. Well, sorry, it's not new. It's been going on for 3,000 years. It's going to go on again. It's just now flared up big. But here's the reality that I think we also need to realize. Who, who's the dehumanized bad people here? The Palestinians. The Palestinians. I have a friend who's a Palestinian in Jerusalem. He's an acquaintance. I see him once or twice a year. He told me this one day. He said, the most important verse in the Bible is this. Love your enemies too. Love your enemies too. I said, why? He said, because everyone in Jerusalem is my enemy. I'm a Christian Palestinian. The Muslim Palestinians hate them. The Jews hate them. The faithful Jews hate them. The Hasidic Jews hate them. The non-religious Jews hate them. The Christians think he's a terrorist, right? He said, everybody I talk to thinks I'm their enemy and I need to love them. You see, there are people in this world that are a part of this. Not every Palestinian is bad. There are terrorists, 
And we have an opportunity as the body of Christ to delve into it. You don't even have to leave your town you're in and to delve into this and really share the gospel of Jesus Christ today. We need to pray for the geopolitical things, absolutely. We need to pray for our leaders and the leaders over there, absolutely. But there are people in this town you could share Christ with because we are in a disruptive state. And I believe when there's disruption, Jesus Christ can come into that and fill it. Or you can go into a corner and complain. And there's a lot of that complaining, but I want Boca Raton Community Church to be known as people that are going to go towards those who are in conflict. Even if you don't agree with them, go towards it and work through it. Maybe you don't agree with everything each side's doing. Of course I don't agree with it. I'm not going to say it all up here, but you know what? I'm going to go talk to people about it because they're thinking about it. And we have that opportunity today. So, Two things today as we close. One is, if you don't have faith, come to faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't take a lot. It doesn't, you know, people go, all I have to do is have faith in Jesus. The answer is yes, have faith in Jesus Christ. It's the faith of a mustard seed. It's not the faith of a mountain. Do that today. And if you are a follower of Christ, go out and act like one in our city, because our city has these underlying conflicts in them, and it'd be a great place for we as followers of Christ followers to get in the middle of those and to share what Jesus Christ has had to say about it. Can we do that? And then I think our radical generosity in relationships can grow. Forgive, be faithful, don't take people down the wrong road have the right attitude toward God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in humility, and get out there and help people. Amen? Let's pray together.